Hello and welcome. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time. This week, I have discovered Irving Cox, a sci-fi writer from the 1950s. I'm reading Love Story and Miracle by Price. It is said about him, Cox is a ghost. Little is known about him, and his stories have all but disappeared. Well, I found some of them, and I can understand why they disappeared. His stories reflect misogyny and hostility towards women, and even a little bit of violence. It seems Cox believed that women were their own worst enemy. His female and male characters are the quintessential 1950s stereotypes, and he seems to enjoy posing what-ifs around male-female roles and reveling in the price of folly. They are pretty far-fetched stories, but they're fun in that the beliefs are laughable, and they are oh so 1950s. And now, Love Story by Irving Cox. The duty bell rang, and obediently, George clattered down the steps from his confinement cubicle over the garage. His mother's chartreuse-colored Cadillac convertible purred to a stop in the drive. "'It's so sweet of you to come, Georgie,' his mother said when George opened the door for her. "'Whenever you need me, Mummy.' It was no effort at all to keep the sneer out of his voice. Deception had become part of his character. His mother squeezed his arm. I can always count on my little boy to do the right thing. Yes, Mummy. They were mouthing a formula of words. They were both very much aware that if Georgie hadn't snapped to attention, as soon as the duty bell rang, he risked being sentenced, at least temporarily, to the National Heroes Corps. Still, in the customary martyr's whisper, George's mother said, This has been such a tiring day. A man can never understand what a woman has to endure, Georgie. My life is such an ordeal. Her tone turned at once coldly practical. I've two packages in the trunk. Carry them to the house for me. George picked up the cardboard boxes and followed her along the brick walk in the direction of the white colonial mansion where his mother and her two daughters and her current husband lived. George, being a boy, was allowed in the house only when his mother invited him or when he was being shown off to a prospective bride. George was 19, the most acceptable marriage age, because he had had a magnificent build and the reputation for being a good boy, his mother was rumored to be asking 20,000 shares for him. As they passed the Rose Arbor, his mother dropped on the wooden seat and drew George down beside her. I've a surprise for you, George. A new bidder. Mrs. Harper is thinking about you for her daughter. Jenny Harper? Suddenly his throat was dust dry with excitement. You'd like that, wouldn't you, Georgie? Whatever you arrange for me, Mummy. Jenny Harper was one of the few outsiders George had occasionally seen as he grew up. She was approximately his age, a stunning dark-eyed brunette. Jenny and her mother are coming to dinner to talk over a marriage settlement. Speculatively, she ran her hand over the tanned, muscle-hard curve of his upper arm. You're anxious to have your own woman, aren't you, George? So I can begin to work for her, Mummy. 
That, at least, was the correct answer, if not an honest one. And begin taking the compound every day, his mother smiled. Oh, I know, you wicked boys. Put on your dress trunks tonight. We want Jenny to see you at your best. She got up and strode toward the house again. George followed respectfully two paces behind her. As they passed beyond the garden hedge, she saw the old business coop parked in the delivery court. Her body stiffened in anger. Why is your father home so early, may I ask? It was an accusation rather than a question. I don't know, mother. I heard my sisters talking in the yard. I think he was taken sick at work. Sick? Some men never stop pampering themselves. They said it was a heart attack or... Ridiculous! He isn't dead, is he? Georgie, this is the last straw. I intend to trade your father in today on a younger man. She snatched the two packages from him and stormed into the house. Since his mother hadn't asked him in, George returned to his confinement cubicle in the garage. He felt sorry, in an impersonal way, for the husband his mother was about to dispose of, but otherwise the fate of the old man was quite normal. He had outlived his economic usefulness. George had seen it happen before. His real father had died a natural death, from strain and overwork, when George was four. His mother had since then bought four other husbands, but because boys were brought up in rigid isolation, George had known none of them well. For the same reason, he had no personal friends. He climbed the narrow stairway to his cubicle. It was already late afternoon, almost time for dinner. He showered and oiled his body carefully before he put on his dress trunks, briefs made of black silk studded with seed pearls and small diamonds, he was permitted to wear the jewels because his mother's stock holdings were large enough to make her an associate director. His family status gave George a high marriage value, and his Adonis physique kicked the asking price still higher. At nineteen, he stood more than six feet tall, even without his formal high-heeled boots. He weighed 185 pounds, not an ounce of it superfluous fat. His skin was deeply bronzed by the sun lamps in the gym. His eyes were sapphire blue. His crew cut was a platinum blonde, thanks to the peroxide wash his mother made him use. Observing himself critically in the full-length mirror, George knew his mother was justified in asking 20,000 shares for him. Marriage was an essential part of his own plans. Without it, revenge was out of reach. He desperately hoped the deal would be made with Jenny Harper. A young woman would be far less difficult for him to handle. When the oil on his skin was dry, he lay down on his bunk to catch up on his required viewing until the duty bell called him to the house. The automatic circuit snapped on the television screen above his bunk. Wearily, George fixed his eyes on the unreeling love story. For as long as he could remember, television had been a fundamental part of his education. A federal law required every male to watch the TV romances three hours a day. Failure to do so, and that was determined by monthly form tests mailed out by the directorate, meant a three-month sentence to the National Heroes Corps. If the statistics periodically published by the directorate were true, George was a relatively rare case, having survived adolescence without serving a single tour of duty as a national hero.
For that, he indirectly thanked his immunity to the compound. Fear and guilt kept him so much on his toes, he grew up an amazingly well-disciplined child. George was aware that the television romances were designed to shape his attitudes and his emotional reactions. The stories endlessly repeated his mother's philosophy. All men were pictured as beasts, crudely dominated by lust. Women, on the other hand, were always sensitive, delicate, modest, and intelligent. Their martyrdom to the men in their lives was called love. To pay for their animal lusts, men were expected to slave away their lives earning things. Kitchen gadgets, household appliances, fancy cars, luxuries, and stock holdings for their patient, long-suffering wives. And it's all a fake, George thought. He had seen his mother drive two men to their graves and trade off two others because they hadn't produced luxuries as fast as she demanded. His mother and his pinch-faced sisters were pampered, selfish, rock-hard Amazons. By no conceivable twist of imagination could they be called martyrs to anything. That seemed self-evident, but George had no way of knowing if any other man had ever reasoned out the same conclusion. Maybe he was unique because of his immunity to the compound. He was sure that very few men, possibly none, had reached marriage age with their immunity still undiscovered. George was lucky, in a way. He knew the truth about himself when he was seven, and he had time to adjust to it, to plan the role he had been acting for the past twelve years. His early childhood had been a livid nightmare, primarily because of the precocious cruelty of his two sisters. Shortly before his seventh birthday, they forced him to take part in a game they called Cocktail Party. The game involved only one activity— the two little girls filled a glass with an unidentified liquid and ordered George to drink. Afterward, dancing up and down in girlish glee, they said they had given him the compound. George had seen the love stories on television. He knew how he was expected to act. He gave a good performance, better than his sisters realized, for inside his mind, George was in turmoil. They had given him the compound, True, years before, he should have taken it. And nothing had happened. He had felt absolutely nothing. He was immune. If anyone had ever found out, George would have been given a life sentence to the National Heroes Corps. Or, more probably, the Morals Squad would have disposed of him altogether. From that day on, George lived with guilt and fear. As the years passed... He several times stole capsules of the compound from his mother's love cabinet and gulped them down. Sometimes he felt a little giddy, and once he was sick. But he experienced no reaction which could possibly be defined as love. Not that he had any idea what that reaction should have been, but he knew he was supposed to feel very wicked, and he never did. Each failure increased the agony of guilt. George drove himself to be far better behaved than he was required to be. He dreaded making one mistake. If his mother or a director examined it too closely, they might find out his secret. George's basic education began when he was assigned to his confinement room above the garage after his tenth birthday. Thereafter, his time was thoroughly regulated by law. Three hours a day, he watched television— Three hours he spent in the gym, building a magnificent and saleable body. For four hours he listened to the educational tapes. 
arithmetic, economics, salesmanship, business techniques, accounting, mechanics, practical science, the things he had to know in order to earn a satisfactory living for the woman who bought him in marriage. He learned nothing else, and as he grew older he became very conscious of the gaps in his education. For instance, what of the past? Had the world always been this sham he lived in? That question he had the good sense not to ask. But George had learned enough from his lessons in practical science to guess what the compound really was, what it had to be, a mixture of aphrodisiacs and a habit-forming drug. The compound was calculated to stir up a man's desire to the point where he would give up anything in order to satisfy it. Boys were given increased doses during their adolescence. By the time they married, they were addicts, unable to leave the compound alone. George couldn't prove his conclusion. He had no idea how many other men had followed the same line of reasoning and come up with the same answer. But why was George immune? There was only one way he could figure it out. It must have happened because his sisters gave him the first draft when he was seven. But logically, that didn't make much sense. Bachelors were another sort of enemy, men who shirked their duty and deserted their wives. It seemed unreasonable to believe a man could desert his wife when first he had to break himself of addiction to the compound. George had always supposed that bachelor was a boogie word contrived to frighten growing children. As a consequence, he was very surprised when the house next door was raided. Through the window of his confinement cubicle, he actually saw the five gray-haired men who were rounded up by the morals squad. The squad, heavily armed six-foot Amazons, tried to question their captives. They used injections of a truth serum. Two of the old men died at once. The others went berserk, frothing at the mouth and screaming animal profanity until the squad captain ordered them shot. George overheard one of the women say, It's always like this. They take something so our serum can't be effective. Later that afternoon, George found a scrap of paper in his mother's garden. It had blown out of the bonfire, which the moral squad made of the papers they took out of the house next door. The burned page had apparently been part of an informational bulletin compiled by the bachelors for distribution among themselves. Data compiled from old publications. The fragment began. And interpreted by our most reliable authorities. At that point, a part of the page was burned away. And perhaps less than 90 years ago, men and women lived in equality. The evidence on that point is entirely conclusive. The present matriarchy evolved by accident, not design. Ninety years ago, entertainment and advertising were exclusively directed at satisfying a woman's whim. No product was sold without some sort of tie-in with women. Fiction, drama, television, motion pictures, all glorified a romantic thing called love. In that same period, business was in the process of taking over government from statesmen and politicians. Women, of course, were the stockholders who owned big business, although the directors and managers at that time were still men— operating under the illusion that they were the executives who represented ownership. In effect, however, women owned the country and women governed it. Suddenly, the matriarchy existed. There is no evidence that it was imposed. There is no suggestion of civil strife or... More words were burned away. However, the women were not unwilling to consolidate their gains— 
Consequently, the popular clichés, the pretty romances, and the catchwords of advertising became a substitute for reality. As for the compound... There the fragment ended. Much of it George did not understand, but it gave him a great deal of courage simply to know the bachelors actually existed. He began to plan his own escape to a bachelor hideout. He would have no opportunity, no freedom of any sort, until he married. Every boy was rigidly isolated in his confinement cubicle under the watchful eye of his mother's spy cameras until he was bought in his first marriage. Then, as he thought more about it, George realized there was a better way for him to use his immunity. He couldn't be sure of finding a bachelor hideout before the moral squad tracked him down. But George could force his bride to tell him where the compound was made since he was not an addict and she could not use the compound to enslave him. Once he knew the location of the factory, he would destroy it. How, he wasn't sure. He didn't plan that far ahead. If the supply of the drug could be interpreted, many hundreds of men might be goaded into making a break for the hills. The duty bell rang. George snapped to attention on the edge of his bunk. He saw his mother waving from the back door of her house. I'll be right down, Mummy. His mother was waiting for him in the pantry. Under the glaring overhead light, he stopped for her last-minute inspection. She used a pocket stick to touch up a spot on his chest where the oil gleam had faded a little, and she gave him a glass of the compound to drink. "'Jenny really wants to marry you, George,' she confided. "'I know the symptoms. Half our battles won for us, and my former husband won't be around to worry us with his aches and pains. I made the trade this afternoon.' He followed her into the dining room where the cocktails were being served. Aside from the Harpers, George's mother had rented two handsome muscular escorts for his sisters. In the confusion, George saw Jenny Harper's mother stealthily lace his water glass with a dose of the compound. He suppressed a grin. Apparently, she was anxious to complete the deal, too. George found it almost impossible to hold back hilarious laughter when Jenny herself shyly pressed a capsule of the compound into his hand and asked him to use it. Three full-size slugs of the drug. George wondered what would have happened if he hadn't been immune. Fortunately, he knew how to act the lusty, eager, drooling male, which each of the women expected. The negotiations moved along without a hitch. George's mother held out for 28,000 shares and got it. The only problem left was the date for the wedding, and Jenny settled that very quickly. I want my man, Mom, she said, and I want him now. Jenny always got what she wanted. When she and her mother left that evening, she held George's hand in hers and whispered earnestly, So they were married and lived happily ever after. That's the way it's going to be with us, isn't it, George? It's up to you, Jenny, for as long as you want me. That was the conventional answer which he was expected to make. But he saw unmasked disappointment in her face. She wanted something more genuine, with more of himself in it. He felt suddenly sorry for her, for the way he was going to use her. She was a pretty girl, even sweet and innocent, if those words still had any real meaning left after what his mother's world had done to them. Under other circumstances, George would have looked forward with keen pleasure to marrying Jenny. As it was, Jenny Harper was first a symbol of the fakery he intended to destroy, 
and after that a woman. Five days later, they were married. In spite of the short engagement, Mrs. Harper and George's mother managed to put on a splendid show in the church. George received a business sedan from his mother, the traditional gift given every bridegroom. And from Mrs. Harper, he received a good job in a company where she was the majority stockholder. And so, in the customary pageantry and ceremony, George became Mr. Harper. Think of it, Mr. Harper. Jenny sighed, clinging to his arm. Now you're really mine, George. On the church steps, the newlyweds posed for photographs, George in the plain white trunks, which symbolized a first marriage, Jenny in a dazzling cloud of fluff, suggestively nearly transparent. Then Mrs. Harper drew Jenny aside and whispered in her daughter's ear, the traditional telling of the secret. Now Jenny knew where the compound was manufactured, and for George, revenge was within his grasp. George's mother had arranged for their honeymoon at Memory Lodge, a resort not far from the directorate capital in Hollywood. It was the national capital as well, though everyone conscientiously maintained the pretense that Washington, with an all-male Congress, still governed the country. George considered himself lucky that his mother had chosen Memory Lodge. He had already planned to desert Jenny in the mountains. George knew how to drive. His mother had wanted him to do a great deal of chauffeuring for her. But he had never driven beyond town, and he had never driven anywhere alone. His mother gave him a map on which his route to the lodge was indicated in bright red. In the foothills, George left the marked highway on a paved side road. He gambled that Jenny wouldn't immediately realize what he had done, and the gamble paid off. Still wearing her nearly transparent wedding gown, she pressed close to him and ran her hands constantly over his naked chest, thoroughly satisfied with the man she had bought. In the church, George had been given a tall glass of the compound. He acted the part Jenny expected. But it was far less a role he played than George wanted to admit. His body sang with excitement. He found it very difficult to hold the excitement in check. If he had been addicted to the compound, it would have been out of the question. More than ever before, he sympathized with the men who were enslaved by love. In spite of his own immunity, he nearly yielded to the sensuous appeal of her caress. He held the wheel so hard his knuckles went white. He clenched his teeth until his jaw ached. All afternoon, George drove aimless mountain roads, moving deeper into the uninhabited canyons. Carefully judging his distances with an eye on the map, he saw to it that he remained relatively close to the city. After he forced Jenny to give him the information he wanted, he wanted to be able to get out fast. By dusk, the roads he drove were no longer paved. Ruts carved deep by spring rains suggested long disuse. The swaying of the car and the constant grinding of gears eventually jolted Jenny out of her romantic dreams. She moved away from George and sat looking at the pines which met above the road. We're lost, aren't we? she asked. What's that? He shouted to be heard above the roar of the motor. Lost! For a minute or two longer, he continued to drive until he saw an open space under the trees. He pulled the car into the clearing and snapped off the engine. Then he looked Jenny full in the face and answered her. No, Jenny, we aren't lost. I know exactly what I'm doing. Oh, 
He was sure she had understood him. But she said, well, We can spend the night here and find the lodge in the morning. It's a pity we didn't bring something to eat. She smiled ingenuously. But I brought the compound, and we have each other. They got out of the car. Jenny looked up at the sunset, dull red above the trees, and shivered. She asked George to build a fire. He tucked the ignition key into the band of his white trunks and began to gather dry boughs and pine needles from the floor of the forest. He found several large branches and carried them back to the clearing. There was enough wood to last until morning, whether he stayed that long or not. Jenny had lugged the seats and the blanket out of the car and improvised a lean-to close to the fire. He piled on two of the large branches, and the bright glow of flame lit their faces. She beckoned to him and gave him a bottle of the compound, watching bright-eyed as he emptied it. With her lips parted, she waited. He did nothing. Slowly, the light died in her eyes. Like a savage, she flung herself into his arms. He steeled himself to show absolutely no reaction, and finally she drew away. Trembling and with tears in her eyes, she whispered, The compound doesn't... The look of pain in her eyes turned to terror. You're immune! Now you know. But who told you? She searched his face, shaking her head. You don't know, do you? Not really. Know what? Instead of replying, she asked, You brought me here deliberately, didn't you? So we couldn't be interrupted. You see, Jenny, you're going to tell me where the compound's made. It wouldn't do you any good. Don't you see? He closed his hands on her wrists and jerked her rudely to her feet. He saw her face go white. And no wonder that magnificent, granite-hard body, which she had bought in good faith for her own pleasure, was suddenly out of her control. He grinned. He crushed her mouth against his and kissed her. Limp in his arms, she clung to him and said in a choked, husky whisper, I love you, George. And you'll make any sacrifice for love, he replied, mocking the dialogue of the television love stories. Yes, anything. Then tell me where the compound's manufactured. Hold me close, George. Never let me go. How many times had he heard that particular line? It sickened him hearing it now from Jenny. He had expected something better of her. He pushed her from him. By accident, his fist raked her face. She fell back, blood trickling from her mouth. In her eyes, he saw shock and a vague sense of pain. But both were overridden by adoration. She was like a whipped puppy, ready to lick his hand. I'll tell you, George, she whispered. But don't leave me. She pulled herself to her feet and stood beside him, reaching for his hand. We make it in Hollywood, in the directorate building, the part that used to be a sound stage. Thanks, Jenny. He picked up one of the car seats and walked back to the sedan. She stood motionless, watching him. He fitted the seat in place and put the key in the lock. The starter ground away, but the motor did not turn over. He glanced back at Jenny. She was smiling inscrutably. You see, George, you have to stay with me. He got out of the car and moved toward her. I was afraid you were planning to desert me, she went on. 
so I took out the distributor cap while you were getting the firewood. He stood in front of her. Coldly, he demanded, Where did you put it, Jenny? She tilted her lips toward his. Kiss and tell, maybe? I haven't time for games. Where is it? His fist shot out. Jenny sprawled on the ground at his feet. Again, he saw the pain and the adoration in her face. But that couldn't be right. She would hate him by this time. He yanked her to her feet. Her lips were still bleeding, and blood came now from a wound in her cheek. Yet she managed to smile again. I don't want to hurt you, Jenny, he told her. But I have to have... I love you, George. I never thought I'd want to give myself to a man. All the buying doesn't make any difference, does it? Not really. And I never knew that before. With an unconscious movement, she kicked her train aside, and he saw the distributor cap lying beneath it. He picked it up. She flung herself at him, screaming. He felt the hammer beat of her heart. Her fingers dug into his back like cat claws. Now it didn't matter. He had the secret. He could go wherever he wanted to. Nonetheless, he pushed her away, tenderly, and with regret. To surrender like this was no better than a capitulation to the compound. It was instinctively important to make her understand that. He knew that much, but his emotions were churned too close to fever pitch for him to reason out what else that implied. He clipped her neatly on the jaw and put her unconscious body on the ground by the fire. He left the map with her so she could find her way out in the morning. He knew it was really a very short hike to the highway, where she would be picked up by a passing car or truck. He drove out the way he had come in. At least, he tried to remember. Four times he took a wrong turn and had to backtrack. It was, therefore, dawn before he reached the outskirts of Hollywood. In any other city, he would not have been conspicuous. Simply a man on his way to work. Only women slept late. However, Hollywood is off-limits to every male. The city was not only the seat of the directorate, but the manufacturing center for the cosmetics industry, and since that gave women her charm, it was a business no man worked at. George had to have a disguise. He stopped on a residential street, where the people were still likely to be in their beds. He read names on mailboxes until he found a house where an unmarried woman lived. He had no way of knowing if she had a husband on approval with her, but the box was marked Miss. With any luck, he might have got what he wanted without disturbing her, but the woman was a light sleeper, and she caught him as he was putting on the dress. He was sorry he had to slug her, but she gave him no resistance. A spark of hope, a spark of long-forgotten youth glowed in her eyes before she slid into consciousness. Wearing the stolen dress, which fit him like a tent, and an enormous hat to hide his face, George parked his sedan near the directorate and entered the building when it opened at eight. In room after room, automatons demonstrated how to dress correctly. Robot faces displayed the uses of cosmetics. There were displays of kitchen gadgets, appliances, and other heavy machinery for the home. Recorded lectures on stock management and market control. Here, women came from every part of the country for advice, help, and guidance. Here, the top directors met to plan business policy, to govern the nation, and to supervise the production of the compound. For only the top directors, less than a dozen women, actually knew the formula. 
Like their stockholders, the secret was hereditary, passed from mother to daughter. George searched every floor of the building, but found nothing except exhibit rooms. Time passed, and he still did not find what he had come for. More and more women crowded in to see the exhibits. Several times he found newcomers examining him oddly. He found he had to avoid the crowds. Eventually, he went down steps into the basement through a door marked Keep Out. The door was neither locked nor guarded, but there was a remote chance it might lead to the production center for the compound. In the basement, George found a mechanical operation underway. At first, he took it for another cosmetic exhibit. Conveyor belts delivered barrels of flavoring syrup, alcohol, and a widely advertised liquid vitamin compound. Machines sliced open the containers, dumping the contents into huge vats from which pipes emptied the mixture into passing rows of bottles. The bottles. Suddenly, George recognized them, and the truth dawned on him sickeningly. Here was the manufacturing center for the compound, but it might just as well have been a barn in Connecticut or a store window in Manhattan. No man was enslaved by the compound, for the compound did not exist. He was imprisoned by his own sense of guilt, his own fear of being different. George remembered his own fear and guilt. He knew how much a man could be driven to make himself conform to what he thought other men were like. His revenge was as foolish as the sham he wanted to destroy. He should have reasoned that out long ago. He should have realized it was impossible to have immunity to an addictive drug. But no, George believed what he saw on the television programs. He was victimized as much as any man had ever been. He turned blindly toward the stairway, and from the shadows in the hall the moral squad closed in around him. With a final gesture of defiance, he ripped off the stolen dress and the absurd hat and stood waiting for the blast from their guns. An old woman, wearing the shoulder signia of a top director, pushed her way through the squad and faced him, a revolver in her hand. She was neither angry nor disturbed. Her voice, when she spoke, was filled with pity. Pity! That was the final indignation. Now you know the truth, she said. A few men always have to try it, and we usually let them see this room and find out for themselves before... before we close the case. Tensely, he demanded, Just how much longer do you think... We can get away with this? As long as men are human beings. It's easier to make yourself believe a lie if you think everyone else believes it than to believe a truth you found out on your own. All of us want more than anything else to be like other people. Women have created a world for you with television programs. You grow up observing nothing else. You make yourself fit into the pattern. Only a few independent-minded characters have the courage to accept their own immunity. Most of them end up here, trying to do something noble for the rest of mankind. But you have one satisfaction, for what it's worth. You've been true to yourself. True to yourself. George found a strange comfort in the words, and his fear was gone. He squared his shoulders and faced the mouth of her gun. True to yourself. 
That was something worth dying for. He saw a flicker of emotion in the old woman's eyes. Admiration? He couldn't be sure. For at the moment, a shot rang out from the end of the corridor, and the top director fell back, nursing a hand suddenly bright with blood. Let him go! It was Jenny's voice. She was sheltered by a partly open door at the foot of the stairway. Don't be a fool, the old woman replied. He's seen too much. It doesn't matter. Who would believe him? You're upset. You don't realize. He's mine, and I want him. The directorate will give you a refund of the purchase price. You didn't understand me. I don't want one of your pretty automatons. Anybody can buy them for a few shares of stock. I want a man, a real man. I want to belong to him. He belongs to you. You bought him. And that's what's wrong. We really belong to each other. The old woman glanced at George, and he saw the same flicker of feeling in her eyes. And tears. Tears of regret. Why? We have you outnumbered, the old woman said quietly to Jenny. I don't care. I have a gun. I'll use it as long as I'm able. The moral squad raised their weapons. The director shook her head imperiously, and they snapped to attention again. If you take him from us, she called out to Jenny, you'll be outlawed. We'll hunt you down if we can. I want him, Jenny persisted. I don't care about the rest of it. The old woman nodded to George. He couldn't believe that she meant it. The director was on her home ground in her headquarters building, backed by an armed squad of stone-faced Amazons. She had no reason to let him go. She walked beside him as he moved down the hall. When they were twenty feet from the guard, she closed her thin hand on his arm. Her eyes swam with tears, and she whispered, There truly is a love potion, not this nonsense we bottle here, but something real and very worthwhile. You and this girl have found it. I know that from the way she talks. She doesn't say anything about ownership, and that's as it should be. As it has to be, for any of us to be happy. Hold tight to that all the rest of your life. Don't ever believe in words. Don't fall for any more love stories. Believe what you feel deep inside, what you know yourself to be true. You men who learn how to break away are our only hope, too. Most of us don't see that yet. I do. I know what it used to be like. Some day, there may be enough men with the stamina to take back the place of dominance that we stole from them. We thought we wanted it, for decades before we had been screaming about women's rights. Her thin lips twisted in a sneer, and she spat her disgust. Finally, we took what we wanted, and it turned to ashes in our hands. We made our men playthings. We made them slaves. And after that, they weren't men anymore. But what we stole isn't the sort of thing you can hand back on a silver platter. You men have to get enough courage to take it away from us. Her grip tightened on his arm. There's a fire door at the end of the hall. If you push the emergency button, you'll close it. That will give you a five or ten minute start. I can't help you anymore. 
They were abreast of Jenny. She seized Jenny's hand and thrust it into his. Beat it, kids. There's a bachelor camp on the North Ridge. You can make it. And from here on in, what he says goes. The old woman added, Don't forget that. She won't, George answered, supremely self-assured. He took Jenny's arm and, turning abruptly, they made their break for freedom. The director managed to remain standing in the middle of the corridor, making a dangerous target of herself so that none of the moral squad could risk a shot at the fugitives. As the fire door clanged shut, George looked back. He saw the old woman's lips moving in silent prayer. And now, Miracle by Price by Irving Cox. Memo to Clayton, Croydon, and Hammerstad Attorneys. Attention, William Clayton. From Walter Gordon. Dear Bill, Enclosed is the itemized inventory of the furnishings of the late Dr. Edward Price's estate. As you requested, I personally examined the laboratory. Candidly, Bill, you needed a psychiatrist for the job, not a graduate physicist. Dr. Price was undoubtedly an inventive genius a decade ago when he was still active in general electronics, but his lab was an embarrassing example of senile clutter. You had an idea, Bill, that before he died, Price might have been playing around with a new invention which the estate could develop and patent. I found a score of gadgets in the lab, none of them finished, and none of them built for any functional purpose that I could discover. Only two seemed to be complete— one resembled a small, portable radio. It was a plastic case with two knobs and a two-inch speaker grid. There was no cord outlet. The machine may have been powered by batteries, for I heard a faint humming when I turned the knobs. Nothing else. Mr. Price had left a handwritten card on the box. He intended to call it a semantic translator. But he had noted that the word combination was awkward for commercial exploitation— and I suppose he held up a patent application until he could think of a catchier name. One sentence on that card would have amused you, Bill. Price wrote, Should wholesale for about three fifty per unit. Even in his dotage, he had an eye for profit. The semantic translator, whatever that may mean, might have had possibilities. I fully intended to take it back with me to General Electronics and examine it thoroughly. The second device, which Price had labeled a transpositor, was large and rather fragile. It was a hollow cylinder of very small wires, perhaps a foot in diameter, fastened to an open-faced console crowded with a weird conglomeration of vacuum tubes, telescope lenses, and mirrors. The cylinder of wires was so delicate that the motion of my body in the laboratory caused it to quiver. Standing in front of the wire coil were two brass rods. A kind of shovel-like chute was fixed to one rod. Price called it the shipping board. Attached to the second rod was a long-handled pair of tongs, which he called the grapple. The transpositor was, I think, an outgrowth of Price's investigation of the relationship between light and matter. You may recall, Bill, the brilliant technical papers he wrote on that subject when he was still working in the laboratories of General Electric. At the time... Price was considered something of a pioneer. He believed that light and matter were different forms of the same basic element. He said that, eventually, 
science would learn how to change one into the other. I seriously believe that the transpositor was meant to do precisely that. In other words, Price had expected to transpose the atomic structure of solid matter into light and later to reconstruct the original matter again. Now, don't assume, Bill, that Price was wandering about in a senile delusion of fourth-dimensional nonsense. The theory may be sound. Our present knowledge of the physical world makes the basic structure of matter more of a mystery than it has ever been. Not that I think Price achieved the miracle. Even in his most brilliant and productive period, he could not have done it. As yet, our accumulation of data is too incomplete for such an experiment. I believe that Price created no more than a very realistic illusion with his arrangement of lenses and mirrors. I saw the illusion, too. I used the machine. There were two dials on the front of the console— one was lettered time and the other distance. The time dial could be set for eons, centuries, or hours, depending on the position of a three-way switch beneath it. The distance dial could be adjusted to light years, thousand-mile units, or kilometers by a similar device. Since there was no indication which position would produce what results, I left the dials untouched. I plugged the machine into an electric outlet and pushed the starter button. The coil of the wire blazed with light, and the chute slid rapidly in and out of the cylinder. That was all, at first. The starter button was labeled the shipper, and I gathered that Price had visualized the practical application of the transpositor as a device for transporting goods from one point to another. I looked around the lab for something I could put into the chute. There was a card, written in red, warning me not to load beyond the dimensional limits of the chute. The only thing I saw that was small enough was the little radio-like gadget Price had called the semantic translator. Loaded horizontally, it just barely fit the chute. I pushed the shipper button a second time. Again, there was a blaze of light, brighter than before, which temporarily blinded me. For a moment, I saw the semantic translator in the heart of the fragile wire cylinder— it had the glow of molten steel pouring from a blast furnace. Then it was gone. The chute shot back to the front of the machine. The tray was empty. Was it an illusion? I believe that, Bill, because later on, when I thought of using the grapple... Miss Bertha Kent walked back to the gravel trail from the dressing room. The early morning sun was bright and warm, but she held her woolen robe tight across her throat. She tried to avoid looking at the other camps, at the sleepy-eyed women coming out of the tents and the men starting morning fires in their stone rings. Bitterness was etched in acid in her soul. She made herself believe it was because she hated Yosemite. The vacation had been such a disappointment. She had expected so much, and as usual, it had all gone wrong. Her hope had been so high when school closed. This year was going to be different. Are you going somewhere this summer? Miss Emmy asked after the last faculty meeting in June. To Yosemite for a couple of weeks, I think. The park's always crowded. You ought to meet a nice man up there, Bertha. I'm not interested in men, Miss Kent replied frostily. I'm a botany teacher, 
and it helps me professionally if I spend part of the summer observing the phenomenon of nature. Don't kid me, Bertha. You can drop the fancy lingo, too. School's out. You want a man as much as I do. That was true, Miss Kent admitted, in the quiet of her own mind. Never allowed, never to anyone else. Six years ago, when Bertha Kent had first started to teach, she had been optimistic about it. She wanted to marry. She wanted a family of her own. Instead of wasting her lifetime in a high school classroom, playing babysitter for other people's kids. She had saved her money for all sorts of exotic summer vacations, tours, cruises, luxury hotels. But somehow, something always went wrong. To be sure, she had met men. She was pretty. She danced well. She was never prudish. She liked the out-of-doors. All positive qualities. She knew that. The fault lay always with the men. When she first met a stranger, everything was fine. Then, slowly, Miss Kent began to see his faults. Men were simply adult versions of the muscle-bound knotheads the administration loaded into her botany classes. Bertha Kent wanted something better, an ideal she had held in her mind since childhood. The dream man was real, too. She had met him once and actually talked to him when she was a child. She couldn't remember where. She couldn't recall his face. But the qualities of his personality she knew as she did her own heart. If they did exist once in one man, she would find them again somewhere. That was the miracle she prayed for every summer. She thought the miracle had happened again when she first came to Yosemite. She found an open campsite by the river. While she was putting up her tent, the man from the camp beside hers came to help. At first, he seemed the prototype of everything she hated— a good-looking, beautifully-coordinated physical specimen, as sharp-witted as a jellyfish. The front of his woolen shirt hung carelessly unbuttoned. She saw the mat of dark hair on his chest, the sculpted curves of sun-tanned muscle. No doubt he considered himself quite attractive. Then, that evening after the firefall, the young man asked her to go with him to the ranger's lecture at Camp Curry. Bertha discovered that he was a graduate physicist, employed by a large commercial laboratory. They had at least the specialized area of science in common. By the time they returned from the lecture, they were calling each other by first names. The next day, Walt asked her to hike up the mist trail with him to Nevada Falls. The familiar miracle began to take shape. She lay awake a long time that night, looking at the dancing patterns of stars, visible through the open flap of her tent. This was it. Walt was the reality of her dream. She made herself forget that every summer for six years the same thing had happened. She always believed she had found her miracle, and always something happened to destroy it. For two days the ideal lasted. The inevitable awakening began the afternoon they drove along the Wawona Highway to see the Mariposa Grove of giant sequoias. They left their car in the parking area and walked through the magnificent stand of cathedral trees. The trail was steep and sometimes treacherous. Twice, Walt took her arm to help her. For some reason, that annoyed her. Finally, she told him, I'm quite able to look after myself, Walt. So you've told me before. After all, I've been hiking most of my life, 
I know exactly what to do. There isn't much you can't take care of for yourself, is there, Bertha? His voice was suddenly very cold. I'm not one of those rattle-brained, clinging vines, if that's what you mean. I detest a woman who is always yelping to a man for help. Independence is one thing, Bertha. I like that in a woman. But somehow, you make a man feel totally inadequate. You set yourself up as his superior in everything. That's nonsense, Walt. I'm quite ready to grant that you know a good deal more about physics than I do. Say it right, Bertha. You respect the fact that I hold a Ph.D. He smiled. That isn't the same thing as respecting me for a person. I know you didn't need my help on the trail, but it was a normal courtesy to offer it. It seems to me it would be just as normal for you to accept it. Little things like that are important in relationships between people. Forget it, Walt. She slipped her hand through his. There, see? I'll do it just the way you want. She was determined not to quarrel over anything so trivial, though what he said seemed childish, and it tarnished the dream a little. But the rest was still good. The miracle could still happen. Yet, in spite of all her efforts, they disagreed twice more before they left the Mariposa Grove. Bertha began to see Walt as he was. Brilliant, no doubt, in the single area of physical science, but basically no different from any other man. She desperately wished that she could love him. She earnestly wished that the ideal, fixed so long in her mind, might be destroyed. But slowly she saw the miracle slip away from her. That night, after the firefall, Walt did not ask her to go with him to the lecture. Miserable and angry, Bertha Kent went into her tent but did not sleep. She lay staring at the night sky and thinking how ugly the pinpoint lights of the distant suns were on the velvet void. As the hours passed, she heard the clatter of pans and voices as people at the other campsites retired. She heard Walt when he returned, whistling tunelessly. He banged around for nearly an hour in the camp next to hers. He dropped a stack of pans. He overturned a box of food. He tripped over a tent line. She wondered if he were drunk. Had their quarrel driven him to that? Walt must have loved her then. After a time, all the Coleman lanterns in the camp were out. Still, Bertha Kent did not sleep. The acid grief and bitterness tormented her with the ghost of another failure, another shattered dream. She listened to the soft music of the flowing stream, the gentle whisper of summer wind in the pines, but it gave her no peace. Suddenly, she heard quiet footsteps and the crackling of twigs behind her tent. She was terrified. It must be Walt. If he had come home drunk, he could have planned almost any kind of violence by way of revenge. The footsteps moved closer. Bertha shook off the paralysis of fear and reached for her electric lantern. She flashed the beam into the darkness. She saw the black bulk of a bear who was pawing through her food box. She was so relieved, she forgot that a bear might also be a legitimate cause of fear. She ran from the tent, swinging the light and shooing the animal away as she would have chased a puppy. The bear swung toward her, roaring and clawing at the air. She backed away. The bear swung its paws again, and her food box shattered on the ground in a crescendo of sound. Bertha heard rapid footsteps under the pines. In the pale moonlight, she saw Walt, 
He was wearing only a pair of red-striped boxer shorts. He was swinging his arms and shouting, but the noise of the falling box had already frightened the bear away. Walt stood in the moonlight, smiling foolishly. I guess I came too late, he said. I'm quite sure the bear would have left of its own accord, Walt. They're always quite tame in the national parks, you know. As soon as she said it, she knew it was a mistake. Even though he had done nothing, it would have cost her little to thank him. The words had come instinctively. She hadn't thought how her answer would affect him. Walt turned on his heel stiffly and walked back to his tent. With a little forethought, a little kindness, Bertha might even then have rescued her miracle. She knew that. She knew she had lost him now for good. For the first time in her life, she saw the dream as a barrier to her happiness, not an ideal. It held her imprisoned. It gave her nothing in exchange. She slept fitfully for the rest of the night. As soon as the sun was up, she pulled on her woolen robe and went to the dressing room to wash. She walked back along the gravel path, averting her eyes from the other camps, and the men hunched over the smoking breakfast fires. She hated Yosemite. She hated all the people crowded around her. She had made up her mind to pack her tent and head for home. This was just another vacation lost, another year wasted. She went into her tent and put on slacks and a bright cotton blouse. Then she sat desolate at her camp table, surveying the mess the bear had made of her food box. There was nothing that she could rescue. She could drive to the village for breakfast, but the shops wouldn't open for another hour. Behind her, she heard Walt starting his Coleman stove. Yesterday he would have offered her breakfast. Now he ignored her. All along the stream, campfires were blazing in the stone rings. Bertha wondered if she could ask the couple on the other side of her campsite for help. They had attempted to be friendly once before, and Bertha hadn't responded with a great deal of cordiality. They weren't the type she liked— a frizzy-headed, coarse-voiced blonde, and a paunchy old man who hadn't enough sense to know what a fool he looked parading around camp in the faded bathing trunks he wore all day. Suddenly, a light flashed in Bertha's face. A metal shovel slid out of nothingness and deposited a tiny rectangular box on the table. For a long minute, she stared at the box, stupidly, vaguely afraid. Her mind must be playing her tricks. Such things didn't happen. She reached out timidly and touched the box. It seemed real enough. A miniature radio of some sort with two-inch speakers. She turned the dials. She heard a faint humming. The coarse-voiced blonde came toward the table. We just heard what happened, Miss Kent, she said. Me and George, about the bear, I mean. Bertha forced a smile. It made rather a shambles, didn't it? Gee, you can't make breakfast out of a mess like this. Why don't you come and eat with us? The blonde went on talking, apologizing for what she was serving and at the same time listing it with a certain pride. Strangely, Miss Kent heard not one voice but two. The second came tinnily from the little box on the table. You poor dried-up old maid. 
That guy who's been hanging around would have been over long before this if you knew the first thing about being nice to a man. Bertha gasped. Really? If that's the way you feel? Why, honey, I just asked you over for breakfast. The blonde answered. At the same time, the voice from the machine said, I suppose George and me ain't good enough for you. Okay by me, sister. I didn't really want you to come over anyway. Trembling, Miss Kent stood up. I've never been so insulted. What's eating you, Miss Kent? The blonde seemed genuinely puzzled. But again, the voice came from the plastic box. The old maid's off her rocker. You'd think she was reading my mind. Switching her trim little hips, the blonde walked back to her own camp. Bertha Kent dropped numbly on the bench, staring at the ugly box. Read my mind, the woman had said. Somehow, the machine had done precisely that, translating the blonde's spoken words into the real, emotional meaning behind them. It was a terrifying gadget. Bertha was hypnotized by its potential horror, like the brutal, devastating truth spoken by a child. A camper walked past on the road, waving at Miss Kent and calling out a cheerful good morning. But again, the machine read the real meaning behind the pleasant words. So you finally lost your man, Miss Kent. The way you dished out the orders, it's a wonder he stayed around as long as he did. And a pity. You're an attractive woman. You should make some man a good wife. They all thought that. The whole camp had been watching her, laughing at her. Bertha felt helpless and alone. She needed, wanted someone else. It surprised her when she faced that fact. Then it dawned on her. The camper was right. The blonde was right. She had lost Walt through her own ridiculous bullheadedness in order to assert herself, to be an individualist, she had always thought. And what did that matter if it imposed this crushing loneliness. For a moment, a kind of madness seized her. It was the diabolical machine that was tormenting her, not the truth it told. She snatched at a piece of her broken food box and struck at the plastic case blindly. There was a splash of fire. The gadget broke. She saw Walt look up from his stove. She saw him move toward her. But she stood paralyzed by a shattering trauma of pain. The voice still came from the speaker, and this time it was her own. Her mind was stripped naked. She saw herself whole, unsheltered by the protective veneer of rationalization. And she knew the pattern of the dream man she had loved since her childhood. She knew why the dream had been self-defeating, for the idealization was her own father that impossible paragon created by the worship of a child. The shock was its own cure. She was too well-balanced to accept the tempting escape of total disorientation. Grimly, she fought back the tide of madness, and in that moment, she found maturity. She ran toward Walt, tears of gratitude in her eyes. She felt his arms around her, and she clung to him desperately. I was terrified. I needed you, Walt. I never want to be alone again. Needed me? He repeated doubtfully. I love you. After a split-second hesitation, she felt his lips warm on hers. 
From the corner of her eye, she saw a chute dart out from nowhere and scoop up the broken plastic box from the camp table. They both vanished again. That was a miracle, too, she supposed, but not nearly as important as hers. Then the reason of a logical mind asserted its own form of realism. Of course, none of it had happened. The mind-reading gadget had been a device created in her own subconscious, a psychological trick to bypass the dream that had held her imprisoned. She knew enough psychology to understand that. She ran her fingers through Walt's dark hair and repeated softly, I love you, Walt Gordon. Was it an illusion? I believe that, Bill, because later on, when I thought of using the grapple, I brought the semantic translator back from nowhere. Apparently, the small gadget had been in the console or behind it. I hadn't seen it when I searched, because my eyes had been hurt by the glare of light. In the process, the translator somehow got twisted around, for the chute dragged it back vertically through the coil of wire. It touched the wall of the cylinder, and the whole machine exploded. It was impossible to save anything from the wreckage, but as a physicist, I assure you, Bill, the transposition of matter into light is, in terms of our present science, a physical impossibility. It is certainly not the sort of invention that could have been produced by a senile old man pottering around in a home laboratory. The only thing I regret is that I had no opportunity to examine the semantic translator, but I'm sure it would have proved just as much nonsense. I'm going to Yosemite tomorrow for a couple of weeks. If you want any further details on the price inventory, look me up at the office when I come home. Yours, Walt Gordon. And those are our stories for this evening. I hope you enjoyed Love Story and Miracle by Price by Irving Cox. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time. <laughs>